Hi, listeners. Before I start the show, I hope you'll do us a favor. You probably heard in recent episodes that we're going to be honored at the Boston Preservation Awards on Thursday, October 15th. If you're listening to this show before Thursday the 15th, we'd be grateful for your vote in the fan favorite category. Voting takes just seconds. Go to hubhistory.com slash fan, and that'll redirect you. That's hubhistory.com slash F-A-N. And thanks. Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 206, Joseph Chapman from Boston to Cali. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about a shipwright's apprentice in Boston who went to sea with the whaling voyage. He somehow ended up being recruited, either by hook or by crook, into a crew that was assembled in the Hawaiian Islands, then captured by Spanish authorities on the California coast and accused of piracy. Escaping the gallows through hard work and Yankee ingenuity, Joseph Chapman would build a New England-style mill for the San Gabriel Mission, which is credited as the first encroachment of the Industrial Revolution into Alta California. He would live through tumultuous times, witnessing the independence of Mexico, the downfall of the mission system he had become part of, and eventually the American annexation of California. But before I talk about the life and times of Jose Juan Chapman, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Sidney Purley's Historic Storms of New England, with the lengthy subtitle, It's gales, hurricanes, tornadoes, showers with thunder and lightning, great snowstorms, rains, freshets, floods, droughts, cold winters, hot summers, avalanches, earthquakes, dark days, comets, aurora borealis, phenomena in the heavens, wrecks along the coast, with incidents and anecdotes, amusing and pathetic. Sidney Purley was an attorney who graduated from the BU School of Law in 1886, and he was a self-taught historian. He published a half-dozen legal textbooks and another nine volumes of New England history, most of which focus on Cape Ann and the witch trials. However, whenever I need to research a weather anomaly that occurred in Boston between English colonization and the book's publication in 1891, Purley's Historic Storms is my first stop. From the Great Hurricane of 1635, the English colonists' first experiences with earthquakes, comets, eclipses, and dark days. To historic blizzards, gales, tornadoes, and droughts, Purley explains each one in detail. He uses period sources to show what the people who lived through these extreme events thought they were experiencing, and he uses the latest scientific knowledge to bring a late 19th century, modern perspective to them. It's a great resource for researching any extreme or unusual weather, atmospheric, or cosmic event. In the show notes this week, I'll include a link to a free ebook version, as well as the usual link to buy a bound copy from Amazon. And for our upcoming event this week, I have two competing events on Wednesday, October 21st. First up, at 4 p.m., Revolutionary Spaces will be hosting the next edition of Reflecting Addicts, their year-long series of events commemorating the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre and its most famous victim, Crispus Attucks. Titled, Demanding Freedom, Addicts and the Abolition Movement, this talk will examine how 19th century abolitionists revived the memory of addicts, after he'd been nearly forgotten as a man of African and Native descent in a country that was building historical myths of its white founders. The panelists will be Christopher Bonner, of the University of Maryland, author of Remaking the Republic, Black Politics and the Creation of American Citizenship, Kelly Carter Jackson of Wellesley College, author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, and Stephen Kantrowitz of the University of Wisconsin, author of More Than Freedom, Fighting for Black Citizenship in a White Republic. Here's how Revolutionary Spaces describes the talk. Demanding Freedom, Addicts in the Abolition Movement reflects on how 19th century abolitionists revived Crispus Attucks' memory in their fight to end slavery. Abolitionists of the era presented Attucks as the first martyr of the revolution, who died fighting for liberty, an image that resonated powerfully in a nation that placed millions of African Americans in bondage despite its stated ideal of freedom. 
In the conversation, we'll place the work of abolitionists into a contemporary setting by reflecting on the obstacles that persist to today when Americans are asked to live up to the founding promises of freedom and liberty for all. After that, the Boston Public Library will be hosting a talk at 6 p.m. with author Bill McAvoy about his book, Rainsford Island, a Boston Harbor case study in public neglect and private activism. Self-published in January, his book delves deep into the decades when a small island in Boston Harbor was transformed from a quarantine hospital into the site of public city institutions that weren't wanted in other neighborhoods, including hospitals, asylums, and reformatories. Here's what the BPL website says about the talk. Author Bill McAvoy explores the history of Rainsford Island and Boston Harbor. Beginning with private ownership from 1636 to 1736, then the province of Massachusetts Bay, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and finally the city of Boston. The island's complex history is best told by segmenting its various periods. Until 1854, it was occasionally a place of quarantine, as well as a summer resort for the wealthy. In 1854, while under the ownership of the Commonwealth, the island's use took a turn beginning 66 years as an offshore repository for Boston's unwanted. Its inmates were victims of poverty, lack of health care, mental illness, senility, addiction, lack of proper housing, poor sanitary conditions, inability to pay a small fine, men unable to find work incarcerated as paupers, and unwed pregnant women. We note two heroes, Alice Lincoln and Louis Brandeis. Their efforts resulted in the city ending Rainsford Island as a warehouse for the poor, the unwanted, and the mentally ill. Rainsford entered its final 26 years as the Boys' House of Reformation. Further examples of inept management, cruelty, neglect, and death of unfortunate boys ages 8 to 18 are documented. Sentences ranged from playing ball on Sundays to murder. Those boys were commingled on the 11-acre island. The book is dedicated to the memory of all who were sent to Rainsford Island, especially those who remain buried there, still neglected but now not forgotten. The book dedicates a chapter to those that never left the island in unmarked graves, including a War of 1812 sailor, nine Civil War soldiers who died on active duty, and 108 veterans of the Civil War who died between 1873 and 1893. Fourteen of those veterans were African American. One was a member of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. In the show notes this week, we'll have the links you need to register for either of this week's upcoming events, or to buy a copy of Sidney Purley's Historic Storms of New England, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Just go to hubhistory.com slash 206 for details. Before I move on with the show, I just want to pause and say thank you to our Patreon sponsors. When I started this show almost four years ago, I wouldn't have believed you if you told me that we'd still be making Hub History four years later, with thousands of weekly listeners, an active community on social media, and, as of this week, a Boston Preservation Award. We couldn't have made it this far without our sponsors. Our most dedicated listeners sign up to give us $2, $5, or even $10 a month on Patreon to offset the costs involved in making this free show. Along with our fixed costs, like web hosting and transcription, they've also helped us out with upgrades like better microphones and expanded storage for the many gigabytes of audio files that it takes to make a podcast. If you'd like to support the show and help us make Hub History, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. Thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. You may be wondering why we ran two rerun episodes in September. Co-host Emerita, Nikki, and I have been trying to get some camping trips in this fall since we can't really travel anymore. No trip to Washington to see my uncle get interred at Arlington National Cemetery, no trips to Maine or the White Mountains, and probably no tropical vacation for our 10th wedding anniversary this winter. What's most galling is that I'm probably not going to be able to see my mother this year at all. I like traveling. I miss traveling. So this week, I'm telling a story that's inspired by travel, both historic travel and my own. 
In the late fall of 2018, Nikki and I went on a great trip to Southern California. We flew into LAX and then drove to Las Vegas, with lots of adventures along the way. One of the first places we stopped on that trip was San Gabriel Mission, just off the I-10 on the way out of LA. It's a magnet for history lovers, with original cisterns, bread ovens, and aqueducts in the courtyard, and an extensive museum with original artifacts and displays about daily life at the mission in the 18th century. While we were there, a groundskeeper was pruning back a grapevine that was as big around as my waist at the base, and had a sign saying it was planted in 1774. He even let us eat some of the tiny tart grapes that have provided the mission with sacramental wine for almost 250 years. After making my way through the museum, I stepped outside the mission walls to get a picture of the Campanario, or Wall of Bells, where the church's six bells are visible mounted in the outer wall. After I got my picture, I paused and read the historic marker plaque by some sort of stone artifact in the grassy area between the mission walls and the busy road. It was the last remnant of a mill race that fed water to a nearby gristmill. Built in the 1820s, the plaque identified the mill as one of the first traces of the Industrial Revolution in California. The mill itself was bulldozed to make room for a housing development in the 1940s, and for decades it was thought that all traces of the mill were lost forever. Then, in 2009, the Alameda Corridor East Project began an archaeological survey of the nearby Union Pacific Railroad tracks. As part of a decades-long, much larger project to make rail traffic play nicely with the densely settled neighborhoods of the San Gabriel Valley, a 1.4-mile-long section of the track was going to be lowered into a 30-foot-deep trench, so it would have less impact on surface traffic, much like our own orange line as it runs through the depressed Southwest Corridor Trench. Archaeologists discovered the foundation of the mill, which was left in place buried under a nearby residential street, and they found the mill race. The eventual report on the survey says, During an archaeological excavation in 2009, a 30-foot segment of the mill race was discovered roughly 25 feet south of the Union Pacific Railroad tracks, along with a much shorter section north of the tracks. The remainder of the mill race was demolished by railroad, road, and civic construction between 1834 and the present. Constructed out of procured stone and cement mortar, the primary remaining mill race segment measures roughly 6 feet wide, 30 feet long, and 2.5 feet deep. The mill race consists of a long, straight water conveyance feature that's shaped like a squared U in cross-section. Now that it was found, the remaining fragment of mill race had to be moved, because it was right where the new railroad tracks were going to go. Over the next few years, a plan was hatched to excavate the larger section of the mill race, stabilize it, and move it. It was eventually moved across the railroad tracks, across the road, and into the small park where I encountered it. It was reinstalled in line with where period maps of the mission show the mill race running, and then unveiled in a 2013 ceremony with descendants of the Tongva people, who are indigenous to the area and would have worked on building the mill and race, as well as a descendant of the mill's designer. The Pasadena Star News wrote, The 20-foot, 15-ton section of the historic mill race was relocated to Plaza Park and restored using rocks from the same area across the street from the mission where archaeologists found it, explained John Dietler, the lead archaeologist on the project. The reconstructed mill race also has water flowing through it. This is really unique. We do excavations all the time, but this is once in a lifetime, Dietler said. I can't think of any other example of a mission artifact that has been reconstructed and actually works. What stopped me in my tracks, though, was a sentence on the historic marker, stating that the mill had been designed and built by an American named Joseph Chapman, who was originally from the Boston area. In one of the displays in the Mission Museum, a caption says, Called El Diablo, or The Pirate by some, Chapman is considered to be the most popular man in early California. Well, that got me hooked. Why was some Boston guy both a pirate devil and the most popular man in Alta California? Joseph Chapman's later years are covered by Spanish, Mexican, and American histories of California, but his early life isn't well documented. Some articles say he was from Maine, and some say he was born in Ipswich. 
about the most solid and reliable primary sources I could find were his baptismal and marriage records through the Catholic missions of California. In both, Chapman listed Ciudad de Boston, the city of Boston, as his birthplace. His parents' names were Daniel and Rosenda, and according to a book of Chapman genealogy, several generations of Daniel Chapmans lived in Ipswich, which may be where the confusion came in. A note on his baptismal record also says that he had never been baptized before, and continues that his sister, older in age, was not baptized until she was 20 years old, having requested it on her own shortly before marrying. And finally, having come to know that so her father, like her mother, were of the sect of the Anabaptists, whose heretics believe that children should not be baptized before they reach the use of reason. Anabaptists are a branch of Protestantism that descends from a persecuted German minority sect. They do indeed practice adult baptism, they treat the Sermon on the Mount as the core of their liturgy, and most Anabaptist churches are considered peace churches. Today, the most recognized Anabaptist groups in the U.S. are the Amish, Mennonite, and Brethren churches. My family's actually from an Anabaptist tradition, and my mother still attends a Brethren church. However, it would have been very unlikely for a family of Anabaptists to be living in Boston at the time of Joseph Chapman's birth, sometime between 1784 and 1789. Throughout the late 17th and early 18th century, Cotton Mather and other Puritan ministers tried to stamp out competing denominations, like Quakers, Baptists, and Anabaptists. In past episodes, we've heard how the Quaker martyrs were hanged on Boston Common for professing their faith publicly, and we've heard how the Puritan authorities nailed the door of the First Baptist Church in Boston closed. Cotton Mather also railed against Anabaptists, calling them schismatical, scandalous, disorderly, disturbers of the peace, underminers of the churches, neglectors of the public worship of God on the Lord's Day, idolaters, and enemies to civil government. In no small part due to Mather's efforts, a large community of Anabaptists never arose in Boston. It's possible that Chapman's parents were secret Anabaptists, but it's just as possible that something got lost in translation. Perhaps Chapman said that he was a Baptist, and the friar heard Anabaptist. Or perhaps Chapman described the beliefs of a Quaker family, and the friar interpreted them as Anabaptist. Either way, it's unlikely that he was raised in an Anabaptist tradition in 18th century Boston. Despite the lack of primary sources about his early life, most profiles of Chapman agree that he was trained as a shipwright. In a 1956 article for the Historical Society of Southern California, Paul Scott wrote, In the year that George Washington was elected president of the youthful United States, Joseph Chapman was born. He was 11 years old when Washington died, and he had already learned to read and write, so that he could be apprenticed early by his father Daniel Chapman to a Boston shipwright. From the year when George Washington died, 1799, the historical record runs dry for almost two decades. His apprenticeship likely lasted seven years, but Chapman doesn't appear in print again until 1818. At some point in the intervening decades, Joseph Chapman went to sea, most likely as a whaler. He reappears as the first mate on a ship called the Santa Rosa that was involved in raiding the California coast. It was this expedition that earned him the title pirate, and most articles about Chapman will call him a pirate. However, one man's pirate is another man's freedom fighter, and the 1818 raids are not a clear-cut case of piracy. Hippolito Bouchard was a French-born citizen of Argentina. He fought in Napoleon's navy and campaigns in the English Channel, Mediterranean, and Caribbean seas, before becoming disillusioned with the French Revolution. Meanwhile, a revolution was brewing against another European empire, and Bouchard sailed to Buenos Aires in 1809 and threw in his lot with the Argentine rebels who were fighting for independence against the Spanish Empire. After winning citizenship through battlefield heroics in 1813, Bouchard became an Argentine corsair in 1815, leading naval campaigns against Spanish strongholds in Peru, Ecuador, and Chile. Over the next couple of years, he fought pirates in Malaysia and conducted raids against the Spanish in the Philippines. 
finally heading into port in the Sandwich Islands in the summer of 1818, in search of new crew members. Many of Bouchard's original crew had died in combat, or of scurvy, since leaving Argentina almost three years before. And the Sandwich Islands, now known as Hawaii, were an easy place to find sailors, as long as you didn't ask too many questions about where they came from. It was in Hawaii that Joseph Chapman joined Hippolito Bouchard's crew. Bouchard negotiated with Hawaii's king Kamehameha I to reclaim an Argentine corvette called the Santa Rosa that had been seized by mutineers and sold to the king. When Bouchard took possession of the Santa Rosa, Chapman was either among the crew that had mutinied but not a ringleader, or he was impressed against his will to serve on the Santa Rosa. Given the fact that he would serve as the ship's first mate, I find it unlikely that he was impressed into service unwillingly. As you'll see in a few minutes, after settling in California, Chapman would have good reason to present himself as an unwilling member of Bouchard's crew. In the fall of 1818, Bouchard took the Santa Rosa and his flagship La Argentina and sailed for the California coast. By this time, Mexican guerrillas had been fighting their own war for independence against the Spanish crown for almost a decade. However, the frontier settlements in Alta California were barely affected due in part to the deeply conservative nature of the mission system, and in part to the territory's relative isolation and distance from Mexico City. The isolated but prosperous ports of California seemed ripe for the picking, but Bouchard didn't know that the Presidios had been warned of his approach. An article from the California Missions Resource Center explains that, In October of that year, an American ship, the Clarion, had arrived in Santa Barbara from the Sandwich Islands. The ship's captain was a friend of the Presidio Commandant, José de la Guerra y Noriega. He warned Don José that an Argentinian-backed privateer, Hippolito Bouchard, was planning an attack on California. The Spanish Presidios, Missions, and Pueblos were put on high alert. The governor ordered lookouts to be posted at 25 strategic locations along the coast. As always, the actual work fell to the Indians. Hippolito Bouchard, with two heavily armed ships and 350 men, did attack in November 1818. Most accounts of the Bouchard raids on the California coast straddle the line between history and legend, and this description from an 1883 history of Santa Barbara is no exception. One day in the year 1818, a vessel was seen approaching the town of Monterey. As she came nearer, she was seen to be armed her decks swarming with men, and she flew some unknown flag. Arriving within gunshot, she opened fire on the town, and her fire was answered from the battery, while the lancer stood ready to repel a landing if it should be attempted, or cover the retreat of the families in case their effort at a repulse should be unsuccessful. For Spain was at peace with every maritime nation, and the traditions of the atrocities committed by the buccaneers at the end of the 17th century on the Spanish main were familiar to the people. After some firing, the strange vessel appeared to be injured by the fire from the battery, and bore away and disappeared. The alarm spread along the coast as fast as swift riders could carry it, and all the troops at every point were ordered to be on the alert. The strange craft next appeared off the Ortega Ranch, situated on the seashore above Santa Barbara, and landed some men who, while plundering the ranch, were surprised by some soldiers from Santa Barbara and before they could regain their boats, some four or five were captured. She next appeared off San Juan Capistrano, landed and plundered the mission, and sailed away, and was never heard of more. All that is known of her is that she was a Buenos Aires privateer, and that her captain was a Frenchman named Bouchard. One of the men who was captured, either in the first artillery duel between the Santa Rosa and a shore battery at a ranch near Santa Barbara, or at San Juan Capistrano, depending on the source you believe, was Joseph Chapman. Paul Scott's 1956 article for the Historical Society of California describes Chapman's arrival in California in an account that's no less embellished with legend than the 1883 version. His article said, Unfortunately, Joseph Chapman's entrance into his California promised land was anything but auspicious. He was second-in-command of the Santa Rosa during the insurgents' attack upon Monterey in 1818. Chapman was probably the fall guy, the expendable one, 
who, with Tom Fisher, an African-American, went ashore under a flag of truce to order Governor Sola either to A. Surrender, or B. Join the Revolution. Sola, who thought the men had come to surrender, promptly accused them of lies and deceits and threw them into the calabozo. Stephen C. Foster, journalist of the 70s, gives a dramatic account of how Joseph Chapman was lassoed during the later pirate attack on the Ortega Rancho at the Refugio Landing and was saved from death by the beautiful Guadalupe Ortega, whom he afterward married. His Mexican captors had preferred to drag him to death behind their horses. Joseph's own explanation when he was interested in his conversion and wished to present his best face to the world states that he had been impressed in the Bouchard's expedition at the Sandwich Islands. A cynic might say that he was impressed indeed by a promised share in the gold of conquered California. Even Joseph does not tell why he was released from jail in Monterey. Among his descendants, there is a story handed down, a very simple one, for more than a century after his landing. Graciosa Elzalde, now an elderly woman living in Santa Barbara, says her mother Luisa could speak with authority of family tradition because her mother was Fervorosa Chapman, born in 1839, ninth child of Joseph and Guadalupe Chapman. And this is the account which Graciosa Elzalde, great-granddaughter of Joseph Chapman, gives. Yes, great-grandfather Joseph was the officer imprisoned by Sola at Monterey, but he was released the next day when Bouchard's crew captured and sacked the town. He stayed with the marauders till the refugio landing, but he had been astonished by the essential honesty and kindness of the Californians, their practice of Christian charity, and his mild treatment at Monterey, when his captures could have tortured or hanged him as a common pirate. Joseph simply escaped from the ship at Refugio, made his way up the canyon and over the pass to Mission Santa Inez. There the friars hid him and befriended him. There Antonio Maria Lugo found him, liked his straightforward appearance, and offered to sponsor him if he would work on the Plaza Church in Los Angeles. This less dramatic story of Joseph Chapman's rescue is probably the way it really happened. Whichever version of his capture is correct, Chapman was almost immediately paroled, which is given liberty to move about freely as long as he promised not to leave California. He almost immediately got busy building a life for himself there and pitching in to help out the colony when asked. In 1821, he was officially freed, though he had already been pretty free, especially for a supposedly imprisoned pirate. With Mexico's independence from the Spanish Empire, Chapman and all Anglo-American prisoners were granted amnesty. Almost immediately, Governor Pablo Vicente de Sola came calling, asking for Chapman's help in building a fulling mill at Mission Santa Inez, northwest of Santa Barbara. About two years before, a water-powered gristmill had been constructed at the mission. The Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation has a page about the historic mills that says, In 1819, Father Francisco Xavier de la Concepcion Uria called for the construction of a water-powered gristmill in an effort to increase agricultural production at Mission Santa Inez. By 1820, two stone reservoirs and a stone mill building were built into the slope of a small hill above Alamo Pintado Creek, about half a mile from the church. Water was supplied by an earthen ditch or zanja that diverted water from Zanja Dakota Creek, more than three miles away. The mill was of an ancient design, using a horizontal wheel powered by a water jet to turn a millstone attached to its axle. It was used to grind wheat, oats and barley into flour, and corn into meal. You may recall from episode 59 about the Motherbrook in Dedham and Hyde Park that a fulling mill is designed to improve the quality of wool cloth, which was important in the mission system that raised many sheep. Cloth woven out of wool is soaked in a solution of diatomaceous earth and urine. Then it's fed into the mill where rounded wooden hammers pound it as it's drawn through the machine. The process scours and thickens the cloth, making it stronger and more waterproof. Chapman was able to design and build such a mill from scratch, though there's very little in his background to indicate that he was a skilled mill designer. All the articles about Chapman say that he was apprenticed to a shipwright in Boston as a teenager, but his baptismal records in California say that he was learning to be 
de Carpintero de Rivera, which roughly translates to a carpenter of the riverbed. Given the sparsity of reliable historic sources about his early life, I wonder if the reference to his being a shipwright's apprentice is actually a mistranslation of this phrase. Maybe it was intended to mean that his apprenticeship had something to do with water power. No matter how he came by the ability, the fulling mill at Santa Inez was impressive enough to establish Joseph Chapman as a gentleman of substance, and to make his reputation as an engineer, with more projects to follow. The following year, 1822, would be a big one for Chapman. In short order, he got baptized, got married, moved to Los Angeles, and helped build the first church in that city. His baptism as a Catholic opened the door for him to be employed within the mission system, as well as opening the door to romance with the proper young ladies of Southern California. On June 24th, Joseph John Chapman of Boston became Jose Juan Chapman y Canata, and on November 22nd, he married Guadalupe Ortega of the Presidio of Santa Barbara. Writing in 1891 of later events in Chapman's life, Alfred Robinson describes Jose Juan in his life in California. He was one of the crew on board the piratical cruiser that attacked Monterey, at which time he was taken prisoner and had lived in the country ever since. From his long residence, he had acquired a mongrel language, English, Spanish, and Indian being so intermingled in his speech that it was difficult to understand him. Although illiterate, his great ingenuity and honest deportment had acquired for him the esteem of the Californians and a connection in marriage with one of the first families in the country. That first family of California was Guadalupe's father, Don Jose Vicente Ortega, who owned Rancho Refugio, a 41-square-mile land grant in today's Santa Barbara County that had been granted to his father by Spanish King Charles IV. In Scott's 1956 article, which we know by now to take with a grain of salt, he describes how the couple met and courted. Graciosa Elizalde's mother also told her how Joseph the Americano first met Guadalupe, his senorita beloved. Maria Guadalupe Ortega was extremely religious and a member of the Santa Inez parish. With her aunts and her cousins, she often rode over the pass to launder and mend the church linens. She may even have met Joseph on the day in December when he came knocking at the mission door asking the privilege of surrender because she and her family had certainly fled from the pirates up Refugio Pass to the mission before the prosperous ranch buildings could be burned. She was not quite 22, a doncella, dedicated to her family and the church. But big, blonde, and handsome Joseph, then 34, changed her mind when he sent his representative Antonio Maria Lugo to her worthy uncles to beg her hand in marriage. She bore him 11 children, all but one of whom were healthy and happy. In the first year of their marriage, the couple moved to the Pueblo of Los Angeles, which was then a town of about a thousand people. That year, Jose Juan volunteered to help rebuild and expand the town's original church, hauling logs out of the San Gabriel Mountains on ox carts. That effort caught the attention of Father Jose Bernardo Sanchez, who ran the mission, and started a partnership that would last for years. As a white man, Chapman moved easily between missions and between mission and secular town. But it wasn't that easy for the indigenous Californians who entered the mission system. Around San Gabriel, the native people mostly belonged to the Tongvin tribe. The Tongvins had tried to fight off the first missionaries who arrived in 1771, but within a few years, many tribe members were lured into the mission with the promise of food, trade goods, or the promise of a better life. Under the mission system, the natives were not legally enslaved, but after being baptized, they were no longer free to leave the missions either. They were forced to labor, growing crops and raising livestock, while all the while the Franciscan missionaries tried to eradicate all traces of their indigenous culture and language. Jose Juan Chapman became a willing participant in this system, with Robinson's Life in California recounting how Father Sanchez of San Gabriel used to say that Chapman could get more work out of the Indians in his unintelligible tongue than all the major domos put together. I was present on one occasion when he wished to dispatch an Indian to the beach at San Pedro with his ox wagon, charging him to return as soon as possible. 
His directions ran somewhat in this manner. Ventura, vamos. Trelos buenos, go down to the playa and come back as quick as you can puede. When you marvel as I did at the work Chapman accomplished at San Gabriel Mission between 1821 and 1823, you have to measure it against the unfree labor of the Tongvins it took to complete the task. Even before moving his family from Santa Barbara to the Pueblo of Los Angeles, Chapman had already been tasked by Governor Sola with rebuilding San Gabriel's grist mill. A 2012 archaeological report for the National Park Service describes the original grist mill that existed at the San Gabriel Mission before Jose Chapman was assigned to replace it. The irrigation system became more complex following the arrival of master masons and potters from Mexico in the 1790s, who were able to construct substantial structures with stone and fired tiles set in mortar. This led to construction of the San Gabriel Mission's first grist mill, which was constructed under the direction of Father José María de Zalvadea in 1816. The mill was a dramatic improvement over the manual grain processing that the mission had previously relied upon. It was built northwest of the mission at the confluence of two small arroyos in present-day San Marino. This facility, later known as El Molino Viejo, the old mill, was the first water-propelled grist mill in the state. Now, that old mill may have been an improvement over grinding grain by hand, but it left a lot to be desired. Writing in the California Historical Quarterly in 1974, Gene Bruce Ward and Gary Kuritz described the work completed by Padre Zalvadea. Zalvadea, in planning the mill, employed as a basic design the Spanish-style tub mill powered by a horizontal water wheel. Contrary to local histories, introduction of this type of grist mill was not without precedent. A tub mill ground wheat and pulverized bone for fertilizer at Mission San Jose in Texas, as early as 1730. In California, horizontal water wheels turned the millstones at Santa Cruz, San Luis Obispo, and San Antonio de Padua. Examination of mission archives indicates that California's first water-powered grist mill was constructed in Northern California at Santa Cruz. Built in 1794, it predated the San Gabriel Mill by at least a generation. Mission Padres, operating in a frontier environment and dependent upon Indian labor and their own limited mechanical knowledge, utilized the tub mill because of its simplicity. Composed of a minimum number of parts, it proved more advantageous to build than the well-known New England-style mill, with its gearing and vertical or overshot wheel. As alluded to previously, the mill operated on simple engineering principles. Water captured from Los Robles and Mill Canyon streams powered the water wheel. The Franciscans, expert in irrigation, first directed the stream water to a small dam above the mill. From there, ditches channeled water through a race to a cistern or reservoir located on the west wall. This funnel-shaped cistern, approximately 15 feet deep, 10 feet wide at the top, and 4 feet wide at the bottom, held an enormous quantity of water, which was stored until ready for use. Remains of the cistern and mill race can still be seen today. The next process, the operation of the mill, was best described by Alexander Forbes in 1839. This description, while the earliest dealing with the mechanical operations of a California mill, is extremely lucid. The mills for grinding flour in Upper California are but few, and of the most primitive construction, but none better are to be found in the other parts of Spanish America. These mills consist of an upright axle, to the lower end of which is fixed a horizontal water wheel placed under the building, and to the upper end, the millstone. And as there is no intermediate machinery to increase the velocity, it's evident that the millstone can make only the same number of revolutions as the water wheel. This makes it necessary that the water wheel should be of very small diameter. Otherwise, no power of water thrown upon it can make it go at a rate sufficient to give the millstone the requisite velocity. It is therefore made of very small dimensions and constructed in the following manner. A set of what is called... Cucharas, or spoons, are stuck into the periphery of the wheel, which serve in place of floatboards. They are made of pieces of timber and something of the shape of spoons, the handles being inserted into mortises on the edge of the wheel, and the bowls of the spoons made to receive the water, which spouts on them laterly and forces round the small wheel with nearly the whole velocity of the water which impinges upon it. 
Indian laborers then poured the grain into a hopper. Mr. Jackson, in his book Mills of Yesteryear, describes this action in the following passage. The hopper, supported by a wooden framework slightly above and off-center from the stones, fed the grain to them by means of a small trough. The grain, in turn, poured from a spout at the base of the lower stone into a barrel-like receptacle. After serving its purpose, the spent millwater was conveyed by a lower ditch to the nearby fields. While the work that Zalvadea and his Tongvin laborers completed was impressive, it had two critical flaws, as Ward and Kuritz continue. Although constructed with permanency in mind, the Padres of San Gabriel replaced the mill in 1823. During its seven years of service, two irritating problems arose. The basic design of the mill was an obvious drawback, as all Spanish-style mills operated at an extremely slow speed. The horizontally mounted water wheel required a large quantity of water to turn it, and in a short time the supply was exhausted. Furthermore, one revolution of the wheel represented only one turn of the stone, and only a small amount of grain could be milled in one day. Criticism of the tub mill design was not uncommon. Such mills in New England were described as equally inefficient and slow. At Mission San Jose de Bexar, in Bexar County, Texas, the millers became so impatient that they switched from water power to Indian manpower. The mill's simplicity, however, assured its place in minor settlements. In addition to the slow speed of the mill, dampness permeated the building, for El Molino Viejo's builders had located the structure above a small natural spring. Hiram Reed postulated that the position was chosen with the thoughts of providing a water supply in case the mill was besieged by hostile Indians. Nonetheless, the spring dampened the walls and probably caused a certain amount of mildew, therefore making storage of grain on the lower level difficult. It is probable, however, that the underground grain was stored there, while the grist was kept in the granary on the upper level. Despite the slow speed and dampness, it's most likely that the advent of a superior mill design in California caused the relegation of El Molino Viejo to a secondary role at San Gabriel. In 1821, Joseph Chapman, a reclaimed member of a pirate community which sailed the California coast in the 1820s and who was described as the Yankee jack-of-all-trades, built a mill at Mission Santa Inez powered by a vertical overshot water wheel. An important feature of Chapman's mill was its bevel gearing, which enabled the millstones to turn at a much faster rate than the water wheel and thereby grind a greater quantity of wheat than the tub mill. On September 25, 1821, Governor Armando Sola, impressed by Chapman's demonstrated mechanical acumen, ordered that the pilot prisoner be sent to build a mill at San Gabriel like that he had built at Santa Inez. Chapman conveniently located the new mill just south of the Mission Quadrangle and finished construction around 1823. Thus, in one short decade, milling at San Gabriel had progressed to the semi-sophisticated horizontal wheel introduced by Chapman. The 2012 National Park Service report details some of the improvements Chapman made beyond the use of a vertical wheel and beveled gearing to transfer the movement of the wheel's horizontal shaft to a vertical shaft to spin the millstone. It says, Chapman used existing infrastructure for the foundations of his new mill and its mill race. Archaeological data indicate that his St. Gabriel mill used the walls of two earlier water reservoirs to frame its foundation. And he situated the mill in the center of the garden to take advantage of pre-existing water lines. Completed in 1823, it came to be called Chapman's Mill. It stood about 246 feet south of the mission and featured a 13.5-foot diameter undershot water wheel housed in a masonry chamber that drove large millstones in a separate gear room. Chapman dug the wheel pit low into the ground to gain as much power from the rushing water as possible, and created high foundation walls to keep water out of the mill itself to avoid humidity. The grinding stones were made of either granite or sayonite boulders from the Santa Anita Canyon, were roughly 3.5 feet in diameter and about 1 foot thick. Some accounts say that Jose Chapman was paid 300 pesos for his work on each mill. However much his payment was, it was enough for him to buy a large adobe home near Mission San Gabriel in 1824, setting out a vineyard of 4,000 vines. 
In the coming decades, the Chapman Ortega family would continue growing a substantial fortune, as Jose Juan sold real estate and worked as a carpenter and blacksmith. Over those same decades, he would also live through two major transitions in California life, secularization and Americanization. While Joseph Chapman had landed in California during the midst of the Mexican War for Independence, the struggle went on for years, mostly far from Alta California. Mexico became an independent state in 1821, but major change didn't come to faraway California until five years later. In 1825, Jose Maria de Echeandia became the first Mexican-born democratically elected governor of California. And in 1826, he issued a proclamation of emancipation. All California natives were freed from missionary rule and made eligible to become citizens of Mexico. During the next few years, further decrees would expel all white Spaniards over a certain age and began breaking up mission lands, either for sale or for the use of indigenous people. As secularization began, Jose Juan Chapman had an encounter in 1827 that presaged the next major transformation of California. The previous year, the Mexican government of California was surprised by visitors from the East. In his History of California, James Miller Gwynn wrote, The Californians had grown accustomed to foreigners coming to the country by sea, but they were not prepared to have them come overland. The mountains and deserts that intervened between the United States and California were supposed to be an insurmountable barrier to foreign immigration by land. It was no doubt with feelings of dismay, mingled with anger, that Governor Echeandia received the advance guard of Maldito Estranjeros, who came across the continent. That Estranjero was an American trapper named Jedediah Smith, who'd come over the Rockies and then south from the Great Salt Lake in search of a trading route that would allow pelts to be shipped out of a Pacific port instead of packed all the way back to St. Louis each year. After stumbling across a couple of mission neophytes in the Mojave Desert, his party got directions to San Gabriel, and Father Sanchez welcomed him with a lavish dinner on November 27, 1826. Three days later, Smith's diary recorded, Mr. Chapman, the American spoken of by the father, came from the village of the Angels, accompanied by Captain Anderson of the Brig Olive Branch, and the supercargo Mr. Scott. Mr. Scott being a good translator, I was able to make my situation fully known. I soon ascertained that nothing could be done until the arrival of an answer from the governor at San Diego. During these first days in California, Smith also noted, The Indian inhabitants are kept in the strictest order, being punished severely for the most trifling offense or neglect. They are whipped like slaves, the whip being used by an Indian, a soldier standing by with a sword to see that it's faithfully done. Smith would be taken to San Diego where he asked the governor for permission to seek a coastal route north to Oregon, where known trails would take him back to American territory. While Smith was in San Diego waiting for the governor's decision, his party waited at San Gabriel, where Harrison G. Rogers, the clerk and quartermaster of the expedition, got to know Chapman a bit better. The day after New Year's 1827, he wrote, Tuesday the 2nd, still at the mission of San Gabriel, Nothing new has taken place today. The men commenced work again this morning for the old Padre. No news from Mr. Smith. Friendship and peace still prevail. Mr. Joseph Chapman, a Bostonian by birth who was married in this country and brought over to the Catholic faith, came here about 10 o'clock a.m. to superintend the burning of a coal pit for the priest. He is getting wealthy, being what we term a Yankee. He is a jack-of-all-trades and naturally a very ingenious man. Under those circumstances, he gets many favors from the priest by superintending the building of mills, blacksmithing, and many other branches of mechanism. The next day, Rogers also noted the cruel treatment of the mission Indians, writing, There was five or six Indians brought to the mission and whipped, and one of them being stubborn and did not like to submit to the lash was knocked down by the commandant, tied and severely whipped, then chained by the leg to another Indian who'd been guilty of a similar offense. Before Smith rejoined the party, and the party left for their journey back across the desert, Rogers recorded several trips into the mountains with Chapman to cut wood for charcoal, also taking the opportunity to hunt for deer and ducks. 
Chapman showed him the mission soapworks, where lye solution was boiled down in progressively smaller kettles, from 2,500 gallons all the way down to 2 gallons. Chapman also told the explorer about the nearby La Brea tar pits, which Rogers described as a natural pitch mine, where there is from 40 to 50 hogsheads of pitch thrown up from the bowels of the earth daily. The citizens of the country make great use of it to pitch the roofs of their houses. He showed me a piece which had the smell of coal more than any other thing I can describe. While Rogers and the rest of the party gallivanted around San Gabriel, Smith was receiving bad news in San Diego. Instead of being allowed to travel north to Oregon, he was commanded to leave California the way he came, through the Mojave Desert and over the mountains. As he returned to San Gabriel to prepare for his departure, he wrote, In company with Mr. Chapman, I moved on to the mission of San Gabriel, where I found my party all well. I must not omit the cordial welcome with which I was received by Father Sanchez. He seemed to rejoice in my good fortune, and well sustained the favorable opinion I had formed of him. You are now, says he, to pass again that miserable country, and if you do not prepare yourself well for it, it is your own fault. If there is anything you want, and that I have, let me know and it shall be at your service. I thanked him for his kindness, and made every exertion to start as soon as possible. Increasing contact with American trappers and others interested in the resources of California helped inspire the last major construction project that Chapman's known to have undertaken. In his History of California, Gwen explains... Father Sanchez of St. Gabriel Mission was an enterprising man, awake to every opportunity to make money for his mission. He had long looked with disfavor on the encroachment of the Russian and American fur traders and hunters. The sea otter was being exterminated, and but little profit had come to the Californians from this valued peltry. So in 1831, Father Sanchez would task Jose Chapman with building a schooner at St. Gabriel that could be used in hunting seals and sea otters off the California coast. They were only mildly hampered by the fact that St. Gabriel is not, in fact, located on the coast. Richards gives what's generally considered the best account of the vessel's construction and launch in his life in California. A launch was to take place at San Pedro, of the second vessel ever constructed in California. She was a schooner of about 60 tons that had been entirely framed at San Gabriel and fitted for subsequent completion at San Pedro. Every piece of timber had been hewn and fitted 30 miles from the place and brought down to the beach upon carts. She was called Guadalupe, in honor of the patron saint of Mexico. And one notes, in honor of Chapman's wife Guadalupe. Richards continues, And as the affair was considered quite an important era in the history of the country, many were invited from far and near to witness it. Her builder was a Yankee named Joseph Chapman, who'd served his apprenticeship with a Boston boat builder. As migrants from the U.S. began to take a more central role in California life, and as the mission that Jose Chapman had attached himself to waned in power, he began to fade from the historic record. Paul Scott's biographical sketch records these twilight years. Joseph watched the missions perish after 1832. His favorite, Padre Sanchez, before the priest's death, must have warned Joseph to go to his ranch. So the Chapman family moved, not to the ranch, Joseph must be forever tinkering, repairing and building, but to Santa Barbara, where the Padres gave him the old hide house on the beach atop what's now called Burton Mound, with such a view of the mountains and sea as would melt the heart. In 1838, Governor Alvarado gave Joseph Chapman, now a well known and useful citizen, member of the powerful Ortega family, a square league of land in San Pedro Colony on the Santa Clara River, 10 miles east of Mission San Buenaventura. It may have been near or part of the 13,320-acre Sanchez Rancho in which Guadalupe's mother had an heir's interest. In 1840, after Joseph sold his remodeled hide house on Burton Mound to George Nedever, he built an adobe on his lot a half-mile from the sea. The location in Santa Barbara today is 182 East Haley Street. In 1846, war broke out between Mexico and the United States, although word of the conflict didn't arrive in Alta California for months after the initial hostilities along the Texas-Mexico border. 
with an exploring party from the U.S. Army scouting along the California-Oregon border and the Mexican Army busy fighting the Americans along the Rio Grande, the rest of American settlers in California saw a chance to act. On June 14th, about 30 men took over a Mexican military outpost at Sonoma, and they raised a new flag that Paul Revere's grandson, Joseph Warren Revere, later described as a grizzly bear rampant with one stripe below and the words Republic California above the bear and a single star in the Union. With that, they proclaimed California a republic. By early July, the rebels numbered over 300, and they'd been joined by the U.S. Army scouting party under John C. Fremont. Together, they took over San Francisco, known then as Yerba Buena, on July 2, 1846. A U.S. fleet that was cruising the California coast under Commodore John D. Sloat used word of the Bear Flag Republic as a pretext to sail into Monterey Harbor and take over. On July 7th, Sloat read a proclamation claiming all of Upper California in the name of the U.S. government and raised an American flag. Joseph Warren Revere later wrote that on July 9th, I had the honor to hoist the flag at Sonoma. As the Bear Flag was replaced by the Stars and Stripes, the California Republic ceased to exist, after just 25 days. The war dragged on for months in Southern California, with Los Angeles changing hands multiple times, until Mexican forces capitulated in January 1847. In 1848, the treaty officially ending the war gave the U.S. possession of California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. Mexican citizens living in those territories were given the choice of moving across the new border into Mexico's smaller territory or becoming U.S. citizens. In the last year of his life, José Juan Chapman, the converted Catholic and naturalized Mexican, became once again Joseph Chapman, the American citizen. His feelings on the Americanization of California aren't recorded, and as Paul Scott notes, he only enjoyed his new citizenship status for a brief time. It was in the humble adobe built by his own hands that Joseph Chapman, the California pioneer, died on January 9, 1849. He was buried the next day in the cemetery at Mission Santa Barbara, the first American to be interred there. In his lifetime, he'd seen the downfall of Spanish power, the disintegration of the missions, the debauchment and death of the Indians, and the defeat of the Mexicans by the Americans. We'll give the last word to California historian H. H. Bancroft, who said, Among all the earliest pioneers of California, there was no more attractive character, no more popular and useful man than Joseph Chapman, the Yankee. To learn more about Jose Juan Chapman's adventures from Boston to Hawaii to Southern California, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 206. I'll have links to the sources I used, including modern news stories about the relocation of Chapman's mill race, the 2012 archaeological report, Warden Kuritz's Some New Thoughts on an Old Mill, Paul Scott's biography of Chapman, Robinson's Life in California, Thompson and West's History of Santa Barbara County, and more. I'll also include historic maps and diagrams of San Gabriel Mission and its mills, as well as photos that I took at San Gabriel in the fall of 2018. I'll also include information about the suspicious fire that devastated the Mission Church at San Gabriel this July. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming events and Sidney Purley's Historic Storms of New England this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History Podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History Podcast.
Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs>